Hello, Jim. How are you doing? Hello, Amanda. I'm doing very well. I'm sitting here looking out on the rain and wind as it's uh, blowing the trees and the leaves. Not surprising, given we're in autumn. And today's podcast, we're talking about something that's really close to your heart, isn't it? And this was one of your um, suggestions. And I'm so excited to have our guests on because it's such an important subject. Well, it is. You know, as I sit out looking looking at the rain, uh, um, I'm I realise how lucky I am to actually be able to get out and enjoy uh, some open spaces and look for wildlife and enjoy nature. But uh, and it's really sad, I think, that so many wild places are being destroyed and, and being developed. Um, and I think, as, as Julian Hoffman, one of our guests today, says in his fantastic book, Irreplaceable, um, you know, we really need to fight hard to save these wild places. Uh, and all over the world, you know, even the, the, the small and the large tracts of land are being destroyed. And they're just, they are literally irreplaceable. So I think it's going to be really interesting to hear what our guests have got to say. And hopefully we can do something to, to stop development of these sorts of places. Yeah, because once they're gone, they're gone forever. And it's no good regretting it after the fact. We have to act now. So it's fantastic to be able to chat to them both today. So I guess we better get on with it. We better had to and uh, put on our raincoats and, uh, and, and wrap up warmly, I think. <laughs> okay. Out with the umbrella. Thanks. Absolutely. All right then. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and our producer, Jim Hayward. This autumn, we're focusing on climate justice. And while so many of the issues around the climate emergency seem to be far away from us, the Amazon or the Arctic, there are a myriad of more local climate battles that are being waged here on our doorstep. And today's podcast is very much on my own doorstep here in Kent, the Swanscombe Peninsula. Currently under threat from a proposal to build a Disney-style, in inverted commas, theme park, the London Resort. This is without doubt a threat to a unique habitat, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Jamie Robbins from Bug Life, who's campaigning hard to stop the development. Jamie, hello and welcome to the pod. Morning, Amanda. I'm also pleased to be able to welcome back to the podcast Julian Hoffman, whom we first spoke to back in the summer about his beautiful book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places, which was shortlisted and then highly commended for the Wainwright Prize 2020. Julian, welcome back and great to see you again. Thank you very much and good morning, Amanda. And you have actually had some experience of Swanscombe, although you, that you're not based in the UK. When you were researching your book, I think it's Swanscombe Marshes was one of the places that you went to, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. Probably about seven years ago, I think it was. And the the plan at, the, at that time sort of was dying down a little bit. And obviously it's been resurrected in, in recent months. But I visited Swanscombe because I was starting to write a book about threatened wild places and what the potential loss of these places would mean, what it would mean for human communities, what it would mean for wildlife communities, what it would make mean for the landscape itself. And what I found at Swanscombe, even though I didn't ultimately include it in the book because I already had quite a bit of material from North Kent, was this remarkable mosaic. And when I say mosaic, I mean that in the truest sense of the word, that they are these small parcels of habitat. You have grassland, you have wetland, marshland, you have emerging scrub, and together they form a pattern. And that, that pattern is an invertebrates paradise. It really, really is. And I think Jamie probably could elaborate on that. But that was my first sense that this place, this little peninsula that nudges out into the Thames where it bends there, was really, really just a mosaic of wonderful, wonderful natural potential. And I love it that you saw that because I guess people going past it, perhaps on the, the, new, the new train line, as you kind of skirt the edge, would see 
just a scruffy parcel of land with bits of power station and bits of railway and bits of development. And they go, well, that's not very exciting. That's not worth preserving. I'm sure we could build some fantastic tower blocks, or in this case, some wonderful Disney-style theme park rides on it. But you saw something different. And that's something that you see too, Jamie, isn't it? And all of your colleagues at Bug Life, you see, you see what's there, what's underneath the obvious. Yeah, absolutely. It's that scruffiness. And I'm not sure I could have put it better than Julian did, actually, that 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 fine mosaic of all these all these different features that are developed from a site with such a complicated history of human use from cement works. And as you said, train lines and landfill, there's boat moorings and people still walk across the site. They fish on the site. They go there to admire the pylon. It's, it has a sense of place and it's a part of the Thames estuary as well as being this this incredible wildlife haven. Yeah, the Thames estuary comes in for a bit of stick, really, doesn't it? I mean, I think people think it's just, a, you know, something that's eminently available for development. I and mean, we did have the plan for the famous floating airport at one point, didn't we? And, and I think it's possibly like so many places in the UK, it's just totally overlooked by the vast majority of us, but absolutely integral to the community that lives there. Well, I think that, you know, often what happens along the, the Thames estuary is that quite a few of the sites are brownfield. And this is obviously something that we'll get into and, and Jamie can, you know, fill in from a from a, a, an insect point of view, because brownfield, it's a really misunderstood term and idea. In fact, it's a poor term, really, because it's, it's absolutely true that brownfield can mean ruined ground. It can mean a piece of land that through its industrial legacy is now so toxic and tarnished that it's extraordinarily difficult to be retrieved or to be redeemed. But in quite a few cases, brownfield can actually be this extraordinary haven of life. And it's no surprise in many ways that there are quite a few insect species that were have been considered extinct or haven't been seen in Britain for many, many decades. They make the return to national life when they've been found or discovered on brownfield sites. So you look at the small ranunculus moth, or you look at the Morley weevil, um, or you look at the Canvey Island ground beetle. They were species believed either extinct or very, very near to it. And yet here they were reappearing solely on brownfield. Yeah, and in Swanscombe, you've got your own example of a species that, that has this habitat. And is it one other place in the UK? It is. It's the, the distinguished jumping spider, which is a which is a rather useful and fantastic name. Uh, so in the UK, it's only found at uh, Swanscombe Marshes and directly opposite on the other side of the Thames at West Thurrock Marshes, um, another site where a significant proportion was, was lost to development some years ago. Um, I, I think when it comes to sites like this, you know, we, we use terms like brownfield or wasteland. And as, as Julian says, it doesn't really, it, it, it doesn't create the same, it doesn't evoke the same emotion as something like chalk grassland or ancient woodland does as a phrase. So it's not just how they visually look in terms of being scruffy and untidy and having that, that rustic charm, I suppose, is how you could uh, consider it. It's, it's very simply the name and how it's even in, in conservation circles, it's given the rather uncharismatic title of open mosaic habitat on previously developed land. So well, that rolls off the tongue. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's hard to uh, champion and celebrate a habitat when uh, you, you've got a name that evokes those sorts of negative connotations. But as, as you say, it's a, it's a crucial habitat type for some of our rarest species. And I'm, I'm sure we'll go into them in, in Swanscombe in, uh, in this conversation. Jimmy, can I ask you, how, how do you think we might proceed to kind of celebrate 
those more unsung brownland habitats? How do we make them more approachable? How do we sing their praises when we can understand from an ecological point of view just how rich they are? How do we make them bring them to the attention of the general public, you think? I think the first thing we need to do is, is to change the attitude that a brownfield site is a development site. Um, uh, Bug Life is an organisation that all of our, uh, the vast majority of our campaigns against developments in the last 10 years have, have been on sites which are brownfield and what often happened is that happens is that ecological value it might be known locally from people such as at Swanscombe there's those those people that walk on the site and bird watch and previous at Canby Wick there was a hardcore group of naturalists that appreciated the real value of the site uh, but usually what only happens is we understand that interest once developments put forward and ecologists go there and start doing their surveys and digging around and uh, then you get organizations such as us and other nature conservation organizations jumping up and down about this jewel of a site that's a threat. So I think what we need to do is make people realize that um, our aesthetic idea of what a, a beautiful wildlife site is doesn't necessarily match up with uh, where, where animals and plants choose to actually make their homes. Yeah, and I think possibly there's a, as a kind of mistaken view, isn't there, by a lot of developers, is that you can just relocate species. So, so okay, you know, this is a bit of tatty old, scruffy old um, brownfield site. You know, we'll just gather some of these bugs up and we'll stick them somewhere else and it looks very similar. But every habitat is different and unique, isn't it? it, has, it has the, it's the combination, it's the ecosystem sitting inside the habitat itself that's so important. And, and obviously you can't do that. I mean, I think it's no coincidence that your jumping spider is the other side of the estuary because at some point perhaps it just did a really big jump. But, you know, there's, there's a reason why things are, are, are where they are. So, so, Jamie, for those people who haven't been there, and, and obviously, you know, I've had the luxury of going and meeting Donna and, and in a moment we're going to just play a little clip from, from, from my time walking around the site with her, but just sketch out why is this site so important? I mean, how big is it and what kind of things are there apart from our fabulous spider? Well, Swanscombe is about 76 hectares, but within that uh, relatively small area, I suppose, you've got this, this rich mosaic of these wet and dry habitats that have developed across it from a uh, combination of it being traditionally coastal grazing marsh habitat, but those mixtures of industry that have happened across the site. Uh, so you've got these you know, extensive areas of reed bed, fantastic what we call, as I said, those open mosaic habitat brownfield areas tend to be these really important uh, biodiversity resources because they, they're they replacing habitats that have been lost in the wider landscape thanks to management changes and, and development. So whereas in, in Essex and Kent previously you might have had extensive areas of more natural uh, grasslands and small habitat features that have been lost, uh, some, some of these rare species now find their refuges just within the unique features that you'll get on a brownfield that, that develop from a, a, a strange history of an absence of management and these cycles of quite periodic but significant disturbance. If you go on there and you dump some material on, you dig some more out, you, uh, you know, you might build, build a path through, uh, pile it with aggregates. Over time, you create this really intricate mosaic of different underlying substrates and topographies and hydrologies. And it's something that's just impossible to replicate because it's, although it's human in origin, it's kind of uh, developed organically over, over decades and decades of you could argue human mismanagement that's accidentally created uh, one of the country's most significant wildlife sites. And nature's response to that too. I mean, it is extraordinary that, that, that despite the incredible damage we do, given time, 
nature manages to adapt to some extent and create a new habitat that perhaps we wouldn't have expected. So, so that's a really important part of that, isn't it? I think, and the fact that, you know, we can't just write places off because they've had damage before. I love that term mosaic because I think that actually sums up how beautiful, because if you think of a mosaic, you think of a beautiful collection of different colours altogether, whether it's, you know, tiles or weaving or something. And each one has a, has a, has a value in their own right and has a vibrancy, but put together, the sum of the parts is so much greater, isn't it? And I think that, that that's a wonderful term. Perhaps we should just talk about mosaic sites from now on and not brownfield ones. Well, the interesting thing, Amanda, about mosaic as a word, of course, as well as it's not solely about the habitats that can be found at Swanscombe, but it's also about the, the kind of assemblage of species because it's not only the invertebrate species that are found there, but for example, you have nightingales that breed there. The nightingales are is a species that has declined by over 90% in the past 50 years. Now, I just turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. So in my lifetime, we have lost nine out of every 10 nightingales that would have existed on the day that I was born in 1970. But here they are on the Swanscombe Peninsula. Again, this place that some people might pass by and say it's nothing or it's empty. And empty is often the terminology that's used by politicians and by developers, not mosaic but empty, that there's nothing there, sorry, that it's valueless. And yet that mosaic extends to the point where it's this wonderful, wonderful collection of both habitats, but a variety of different species inhabiting them. Yeah, and perhaps now is a good point to just have catch up with Donna and, and find out the things that we we heard. I don't think, sadly, we got to hear any nightingales, <laughs> but it was a wonderful trip nonetheless. So I'm here on Swanscombe Marshes and it's quite a blustery day so forgive us if you get a bit of wind interference in this recording but I'm really pleased to be here in the company of I think it's fair to say a local expert at Donna Zimmer who um who is really the Swanscombe superstar as people have described her she's busy denying that but 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 Donna tell me why did you get involved and what is it that you're trying to achieve I want to protect this area I mean look at it we're standing by the Thames the sun's just come out it's so peaceful. It has such incredible wildlife. It needs protecting. It does not need a theme park. And how do local people feel? Because I guess normally people say, oh, yeah, but that will bring jobs and industry and money to the area. Do you think that local people want the theme park? Well, all I can comment to that is the people that I've met as we're walking around, um, that, you know, they're horrified. Um, they're worried. And, you know, for so many reasons... Yes, they love walking around, they love seeing the nature, um, you, they just love being part of this environment. But, you know, they're worried about traffic, there's all sorts of issues. I am yet to meet anyone that says, I really want a theme park here. Yeah, I can't imagine why anyone would, would want a theme park here because we're, as you, as you say, we're right next to the Thames. In the distance, I can see the famous QE2 bridge, the Dartford Crossing. You know, there's evidence of industry and cement works and building works all around us. And yet we're in this oasis that is just extraordinary. It's calm. We've, we can hear birds. It's beautiful to look at. And it's a real haven for local people. And a theme park would take that away from people. It would give people no opportunity to get out and get close to nature. Donna, what sorts of things have you been doing to help support the campaign? I'm really supporting Bug Life because they're doing, you know, an excellent job. Um, so apart from kind of promoting their petition, um, you know, showing them around the site. Um, yeah, and, and just really trying to get the word out there because, 
you know, once it's gone, that's it. There's no going back. You can't then go, oh, do you know what? We made a mistake. We'll, we'll put it back here. It doesn't work like that. So it does need protecting now. And you weren't a born and bred campaigner, were you? This is something that just <laughs> happened to you because you became so passionate about the places that you were walking oh, in. Yeah, I mean, I just enjoyed nature and, um, you know, got a camera and just started learning really by taking photos what's that bird getting the books reading up on it um, and then you kind of become part of of the area um, and, and you it becomes your home and you love it and then when you find that you know people want to abuse it and concrete over it and destroy it you you have to use your voice it's not something that's comes naturally it's not something you want to do but if you don't who will and you know hopefully by speaking up I'm not an expert in any shape or form I only know what I know and I'm always learning but anyone can be that person so we do need to speak up we can yeah we can all band together to protect the things that we care about so let's go for a little wander and you can show me what sorts of things are here so Donna what is it we can hear in the background here some of these birds you can hear a stone chat just over to our right um, making a sound like two stones clocking, sort of clicking together. Um, they've all come out now, the sun's out. Um, so yeah, that's quite nice. And that's I can like, hear other things sort of chirruping in the background. My very non-technical expression <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, we've had long-tailed tit, blue tit. Um, yeah, lots of things just sort of coming and going. And what's the most unusual bird that you've ever seen here? Um, I, I guess the nightingale is incredible. Um, and quite special really and, and to hear a nightingale that is really something quite quite special to listen to so I suppose that one comes to mind having said that I quite enjoy seeing the marsh harrier where I'll take you over when we walk over to Black Duck Marsh because um, we've you know we've got a pair of them here and um they are incredible to watch and, and you know when they're there because everything else goes up so it's a good way to see what other birds are in the area so that's quite nice too um but, but it's, it is difficult to pick out individual things because you know there is sort of so much here there really is and you know i get very excited about the stone chats you know when they come up and speak to me so yeah it's all it's all quite special and you get some migrating birds as well stopping off en route don't you yes we do i mean i fully expect to see some field fare or red wing you know as we're walking around today um with all the berries um i was lucky a few weeks ago we had a pair of ring ouzel um that stood out which you know was, was rather special they love these sort of quiet areas you know with all what's here um so that's quite nice yeah and Obviously, it changes through the seasons, you know, with what's about. Um, so, yeah. What can we see? What are we looking at now? So, this is Broadness Marsh. This is sort of the other marsh area of Swanscombe Marshes. Um, and what I quite like here, I've been sort of listening about the distinguished jumping spider and reading about their kind of habitat. They live in sort of small holes in rocks. I'd noticed that there's quite a few of these sorts of rocks along this area. So I'm going to hopefully find some and have a look. Oh, why do and they jump? They jump to eat their prey. Um, yeah, they don't weave webs. So that's, that's quite fascinating, really. And also, they need to be able to jump just in case a female decides to eat it. So, <laughs> oh, <laughs> precarious life. <laughs> yeah. So look, can you see all these kind of 
all the rubble and the stones. I mean, it's, it needs to be quite quite bare. And it could possibly be down there as well. June is a good time to look for them. So, so I'm not like definitely today, be back. No, we, we won't see any today, but I'm always kind of looking, thinking. Well, so they yeah. make a little hole in amongst rocks and stones? Well, like, I think they just go into like a hole like a um, right. for protection and they kind of sit there. And um, yeah, looking at them, they blend in very well. But once you kind of know the area, I imagine they'll catch your eye if they jump. So yeah, look, this looks perfect. You can see there's not much vegetation. Um, no, it looks just like a, it's just like a pile of um, a rubble really, which yeah, I guess is yeah. left over from something which was industrial that was dumped here. There's bits of brick and there's bits of old flint and things. And it, you know, and in amongst it, there's things growing as well, aren't they? There's yeah. bits of tufts yeah. of reeds and, and grasses and, yeah, it's amazing. But to know that this tiny little centimetre character only lives at two sites, here and obviously across the Thames. Um, I mean, that is quite exceptional, isn't it? I mean, to know that, you know, somewhere amongst them. Um, Definitely worth saving. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. Okay, to the untrained eye, Donna, this just looks like a bit of old wasteland really I can see bits of sort of gravel and even some broken bits of wood and things but this is actually the heart of Swanscombe isn't it this is the kind of bit that epitomizes the mosaic landscape why is this particular area so important yeah I mean it is very important for our invertebrates this is the open mosaic habitat where um, I mean it's fascinating you've got all sorts of plants and grasslands kind of fighting their way up from the debris and what's been left before um, and it offers, you know, food and protection. Um, and it obviously works because we know we've got record amounts of invertebrates at this site, more at this site than anywhere else in the UK. But I've seen these kind of pockets of open mosaic um, places sort of dotted around, but I don't think I've seen one as big as this. And it's the middle bit, the bit that's meant to be worthless, the bit that they're going to build on. And yet, you know, you can see with all this here, why you know all the amazing birds that I come to see do rather well here because you know this is their food. Yeah, it's an incredible it's so connected, isn't it? Yeah, it's an incredible sight as well because even the sun's come out and you know it's catching the the, the light. Isn't it? Yeah, the light on the trees, and yet you can. And if you stop, if we stop talking for a second, we'll be able to hear all of that life that's teeming here. And I look at it and I think this doesn't look like the site of a theme park to me. That's the biggest insult, really, isn't it? Donna, the superstar from, from Swanscombe. Great to have had her on the show, and I'm so glad I got to go out in my wellies to meet her. Um, Julian, I wanted to talk to you about those nightingales, because actually, if we think of some other places that have featured both on the pod and in, and a lot in the national press in the UK, you know, I'm thinking perhaps of NEP, which is the one of the most famous rewilded areas mm -hmm. that we have in the UK. One of the things that Izzy and, and, and Charlie celebrate at NEP is the return of the nightingale. So it's, I think that just kind of seems to encapsulate that, that if we can actually let go a little bit and allow yeah. rewilding to happen, we can bring back those species that, that, that you know, we thought were almost completely extinct. And, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's the, the research coming out of rewild in Britain about the number of species under threat now is really terrifying. So, so we've got an opportunity here to turn the tide a little bit, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what it comes as, as much as anything is that, um, you know, I think, in recent years or decades, you know, it's become very, very easy for politicians, not only in Britain, but across the world, to appear to be sympathetic 
to the green movement, to be appear to be sympathetic to policies that would encourage a greater thriving of biodiversity. And you needn't spend much more than a day before you'll hear some politician somewhere talking about their keenness to, to stem the loss of biodiversity, to really tackle the climate crisis. But those words, unless they're followed up or translate into action on the ground, they're utterly devoid of meaning. And this is my big problem with something like Swanscombe development, because you have a place that has a species like the, the distinguished jumping spider found in only two places in all of Britain. And yet it's threatened to be turned into a, into a theme park. So unless there is that translation into action, then really those words don't mean a great deal. And I think that what we emerge with is a kind of ethical question because we become morally complicit potentially in the extinction, the actual extinction of a species from Britain. And that wasn't so different from the, from the horrid ground weaver story in Plymouth a few years ago, a species, again, little known, but existed in only a few formerly used quarries. And the plan there was to build 57 houses on these quarries. But what it would mean would be the potential extinction from the entire country of a species that most people will never see but that's not really the point about extinction. It's about recognizing the moral question at the very heart of it. And I think that's what we need to see, a greater determination, not only to say the right things, but to do the right things. PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. So I think Julian hit the nail on, on the head there. We're, we're hearing a lot of lip service about um, commitments to biodiversity from, from our leaders, but uh, just, just recently we've had the proposed planning reforms coming out, uh, which appear to do nothing but, uh, but enable development and, and potentially uh, lead to more swanscombs coming forward if those proposals are uh, followed up on, we're talking about a scenario where a site can be allocated for development based on very little environmental data and taking away the, the strong uh, insurance we have of having on-site surveys a part of all of our planning considerations. I think awareness is increasing uh, with some of our partners on the importance of sites such as Swanscombe from Vertebrates. Uh, the RSPB and Kent Wildlife Trust have, have both um, joined our campaign to try and protect the site. It's as, as Julian was saying, it's more than just the 2,000 invertebrate species, the 250 species of conservation concern. It's, it's everyone's realising these brownfield sites and, and sites like them are, are national assets. Uh, it's only just short of the threshold to be a nationally important breeding bird site. Um, the RSPB have, have done some great work looking at the data from the initial surveys on the site and, and have shown it actually is, has more breeding bird species than some of their leading Thames estuary nature reserves. It has more than rain and marshes, than Northwood Hill, than Dungeness. It's, wow. Exactly. It's, it's a real gem of a site for birds as well. But there's there's nine uh, nationally scarce plant species. There's otters and water voles. We're, we're not just talking about an invertebrate site here. We're talking about a, a unique site with characters able to support this fantastic assemblage of wildlife across the taxonomic spectrum. Yeah, teeming with species. But I think that, you know, I can't let that comment go, Julian, without coming 
back to say that I think you're absolutely right. We have a hollowness at the heart of government here. We have rhetoric, but we have no action. And we have a prime minister who in one breath said that he was committing to, you know, the green recovery. And then the next was talking about build, build, build and getting rid of the newt lovers, you know, so there's no real care for the planet um, from our current leadership. And, and I guess they would come back to me and say, oh, yes, but there's an economy here. We're in the middle of a COVID pandemic. People are losing their jobs. There's an economic argument for concreting over Swanscombe and building a theme park because it will create jobs. It will create opportunities. Um, I think I would argue that actually there isn't an economic argument. We could create a far better economy out of working with what we've got. But I mean, how would you respond to that difficult question of that? We know we need to, to create more jobs for a bit of Kent that's probably in a high level of deprivation. Well, I think there's there are many measures of well-being, and I think what has predominated uh, in recent years is solely one of monetary gain, fiscal gain, and that seems to to trump all else. And Swanscombe is a, a perfect uh, example of other measures of well-being because, uh, for anybody who doesn't know where Swanscombe is situated, it's on the Thames in, in North Kent, but to the east is is the built-up area of Gravesend. To the west is the QE2 bridge and a power plant, and directly adjacent on the other side of the Thames are the Tilbury docks. So you have this relatively small parcel of greenery and thriving wildlife that by and large is enclosed and circled by industrial uh, communities, by, by, um, by cities, and by all of this, these other developments effectively. And what Swanscombe then means to its local residents, to those who live nearby, is this extraordinary green space that people have immediate access to it. People go walking there, they take the dog there, they go bird watching there, they go angling there, they might just sit there for a while. And you mentioned the pandemic earlier and that the response, and this is my grave concern, that governments may end up responding to the pandemic by attempting to uh, supercharge or turbocharge the economy by building everywhere. And yet some of the things that we need desperately to take from the pandemic is the absolute critical need to have local access to green space because I think nearly all of us have recognized how important it is. And of course, for many people, you might have access to more remote or more distant places to go away for a weekend of walking, rambling. But for within your poor communities, for example, the, it's the local green spaces that take on a profoundly important role. And that's what Swanscombe is. And I think, you know, the great environmental uh, scholar and writer, Oliver Rackham, once said that there were four types of loss in the landscape that he'd charted over the course of his lengthy life. And that was the loss of beauty, the loss of freedom and open spaces was number two. The loss of historic wildlife and vegetation was number three. And the loss of meaning, the cumulative loss of meaning was number four for him. But I think there's one more that it's critically imperative to take note of. And this one is the loss of connection. Because once we build over Swanscombe, we remove all of those opportunities for people, not only for wildlife, but for human communities to engage with that place in whatever way they wish to. We remove the possibility for contact with nature 
And by doing that, we steal away from local communities all the benefits that scientific study after study after study have now proven that we gain, whether it be increased mental focus, uh, reduced stress levels, improved mental health, all of these things, along with good quality, positive exercise, all of those are ripped out of the heart of a community. So the importance of these places are twofold. It's for wildlife, but also for flourishing human communities. So important. And I think that the, you know, the more and more lockdowns that we impose on our communities and say you can only go out once a day and you can only go within a few few kilometers of your home, you know, the vast majority of people are not living, you know, in the rolling green fields of, of England. They're living in urban or semi-urban conurbations and their their local space will be somewhere like Swanscombe. It'll, you know, it may be that one of those scruffier patches as well as one of those beautiful parks. And actually we do those people a huge disservice to say that actually we're going to rip away access to the landscape for them. And, you know, we're already seeing the toll on our mental well-being and our mental health as a result of COVID exacerbated hugely if people cannot get out and, and, and connect with nature. Jamie, you've got a really powerful campaign going on. What sort of things have you been doing and what's the, the bigger picture for bug life, but what's the specific picture for Swanscombe as well? Well, I think the Going back to what, what Julian said, I think the, the interesting thing that happened with the campaign, as soon as we, we started publicizing our concerns for Swanscombe, we found ourselves literally inundated with local residents who were firstly pleased to see a national organizations standing up to, to try and protect the green space that's so important to them. But more than that, wanting to help. I literally received hundreds of photos of the site when I put out a little plea for some nice photos of the site to support our campaign. Um, and we've had people getting in contact to see what they can try and do to influence their MP, to see how they can try and rally support locally. But what, what we're trying to do is uh, get, originally we were trying to get local people to submit comments to the, the public consultation, the, the boring nitty gritty behind these planning cases. We're also trying to get people to simply sign our petition to save Swanscombe marshes and, and get them to, to share that message because we want as many people as possible to sign on so we can uh, if when it eventually gets submitted as a planning application, actually a nationally significant infrastructure project, which is very interesting for a for a site without any significant infrastructure being built associated with it. Um, but when that goes through, we want to try and show the Secretary of State that this is important for people nationally to to know that it's a, such a significant site; it needs to be protected uh, for for its species, but also that local people value it as that local space. Um, we're also going to look to see how we can. Uh, try to get it better designated to be protected as a site of special scientific interest because what I, I think it would be remiss of all the conservation organizations to sit by and watch such a gem of a site go without without trying to get it protected. Do you think you'll run up against any opposition because you know the plan I guess to build this resort is that it's going to create all these jobs and in an area of, of, of deprivation jobs are hard to come by so are you getting any pushback from the community to say well it's all very well you know you say you save the spider but I need to eat I need to feed my family I need to you know I need to put shoes on their feet so I need a job there are of course always people will say that I'm my job isn't to be an economist my job is to is to stand up and try and uh, and protect our wildlife um, a lot of those people do understand where we're coming from and um, without without digging into too much of the intricacies of the Swanson application it's interesting to note there's uh, at least 1,500 jobs associated with um, existing industrial estates within the footprint of that development. So that, that's, a, that's a cause for other people to uh, champion rather than ourselves. So those jobs would go if those bits of 
So, okay, so you'd lose 1,500 and you'd have to create many more to make it right. And uh, again, I, 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 without knowing the details of the, the jobs being lost, it's probably safe to assume that these jobs with associated with all these small to medium-sized businesses are probably more likely to put food on the table than a minimum wage job working at a theme park. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, we the likelihood of many of us going to a theme park in the near future is pretty slim. And who knows, do we need another theme park? Surely what we ought to have is something there that celebrates the natural environment that people from outside the area could come in and benefit from. And we could develop an economic model that supported that. You know, I'm thinking about the success of places like the Eden Project. I'm not suggesting we put an Eden Project there, but but there's a desire amongst all of us to get closer to our natural world and to find out things, isn't there? I think it's it's also dangerous this um, this splitting up of economics and and the environment. Um, there's there's a tendency for economic short termism, um, and I think that goes back to what um, Julian and yourself were talking about with trying to turbocharge the economy in a post COVID world. Um, of course, the whole definition of sustainable development and sustainability is that the environment, which of course includes wildlife is is one of the crucial pillars to that you can't have an economy without the environment the environment underpins the economy and i think that gets lost um when we particularly when we start to look at things in isolation if you look at each individual development that gets put forward on a fantastic wildlife site in the uk you always often hear there's an overwhelming economic argument if you keep having these overriding economic arguments in air quotes for each of these ones in isolation you end up desolating swathes of the UK countryside. And it's, it's, it's dangerous when they're all viewed in isolation. Yeah, we need to bring these together. And I think people's awareness that that, that there are so many places that are so special has grown during the, the pandemic. I mean, in the COVID cliche, if you walk out of your front door and you see something you've never seen before because you've just taken some time to look, it is really important for, for people. And, it, you know, going back to Julian's point about mental well-being and, the, and our connectivity to the landscapes we live in, whether urban or rural, is, is something that I think has come into the sharp focus during you know during COVID and will continue to be because the, unfortunately it looks like the pandemic's not going anywhere soon and we're going to have to learn to live differently. So maybe we need to learn to live alongside a bit of scruffiness and understand what we have on our doorsteps because that's incredibly important. And in fact, Julian, your whole book really is about these amazing irreplaceable places that 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 really, I guess, sum up our, our complicated but much, you know, our need for the environment around us and our complicated relationship with it. Thank you. Yes, it, it was. And, you know, and interestingly, quite a few of those places turned out, not by intention, but to be in North Kent. And I think that, you know, Swanscombe fits into that, that earlier parts of the book in the sense that you have another place that once it's gone, it's gone. And we can't row back on these decisions. And that's the great problem, uh, you know, with the development decisions that, that are pending currently, is that we can't gain, regain these places and so much is lost with their destruction. And I think it's also important to note that, um, and Jamie, please correct me if I'm mistaken, but a, a, a bug life ecologist, Sarah Henschel, that I spent time with a few years ago at Canvey Wick, had said that it's only about 8% of brownfield that is considered to be of high ecological value. Because as I mentioned earlier, a fair bit of brownfield can be seriously, seriously ruined ground. So it's not about conservationists talking about the complete retention and preservation of all brownfield space. It's about being smart about what is of real great value. It's about disregarding the terminology and looking at the actuality of a place and really trying to lower yourself to the ground because these places, 
by far and large, are invertebrate paradises. And it requires a kind of leap of the imagination and it requires opening our hearts and minds to a whole different level of life that by and large for most people kind of passes them by. And it's these small glittering myriad forms of life, the bugs of the world that are the absolute cornerstone of, of the planet. They are the core of the food web, uh, invertebrate species are, are required for human agriculture as pollinators. They are absolutely at the very, very heart of our own flourishing into the future. So I think what we really need to do is to look very, very carefully and to recognize the actuality rather than to be impressed by the terminology of a word. Jamie, did you have a closing plea to our listeners? Because I think Julian's put it so beautifully. I'm sure it's about um, getting them to sign the petition, but it may go beyond that. And we'll put details of the petition on our Twitter and social media and we'll, we'll, we'll link it to the episode. So, so have you got something you'd like to call out to people to do? Well, of course, it is a case of asking people to please sign our petition and support our Swanscombe campaign and, and, and share the message. A big part of it, I think, is, is following on from what, what Julian said, it's that trying to change the attitude towards these these brownfield sites away from uh, thinking of them as just scruffy wastelands. I, I've, we were talking about the terminology earlier, and one of the things I think hits home is when we describe them as urban wilderness sites, it has a bit more of that, that wild feel to it. And it has that sense of place, particularly when it comes to somewhere like Swanscombe, where you think about the estuary and the, 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 the solitude you get when you're on sites like this. It's... Um, they're some of our last remaining, um, inverted commas, wild places in, in some of our most urban environments. Um, and again, the, with brownfields, we need to reassess what we think of them, because if you have a site that's just a hard standing car park type site, by all means, go ahead and develop on a site like that. But when we talk about brownfields, some of them are contaminated and, uh, you know, standing, scary looking structures. They can be quite intimidating sounding places. But those are things that adds the, the value to them for wildlife. This contaminated ground stops you having a site that turns to woodland that keeps them as open, flowery sites. And they're teeming with some of our rarest uh, bees and beetles and all of these things. And I think one of the best images from an overall wildlife perspective of Swanscombe is the fact that ravens use the site so close to London. And the reason they use the site is because it's got that enormous pylon, the tallest, the tallest pylons in in either UK or Europe, I wouldn't want to say which, um, the tallest pylons in the country, definitely. And you have ravens using that as a, as a viewpoint and choosing to nest on the site, which is just, just fantastic. It sums sites up perfectly. Yeah, it just encapsulates the wonderful, magical sense of place. And for those of you who, who need a little more, then I recommend highly Julian's beautiful book, Irreplaceable, because he gives that evocative insight into places that some of us have not had the chance to go to. So to you both, thank you hugely for being guests on the podcast today. And it's a really, really important cause. And as I say, we'll, we'll tweet the links. And so sign the petition and do all you can, not just to save Swanscombe, but the scruffy bit of land that might be at the end of your street, which could itself be a wildlife mosaic. You can find out more about the Swanscombe petition by visiting Buglife's website, buglife.org.uk. And you can also sign up to be a supporter of them. And they definitely need your support. So do that. And don't forget, you can find Julian's wonderful book, Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Wild Places. Um, it's available on, from Penguin. And if you're buying it online, visit The Hive, which supports local bookstores. My thanks to Jamie and to Julian for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to you, our listeners. Um, as always, you can catch up with episodes of, of the podcast on our website, theplanetpod.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. 
and download us on your favourite podcast app. And if you do so, please rate and review the programme because it really helps us. It's been fantastic. And listen out for other episodes of um, our programmes in the Climate Justice series. And thanks for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.